With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hey, welcome to Latina to Latina. On this podcast, I talk to Latinas about their success, their struggles, and what it takes to be truly great. Some friendships, like romance, have the feeling of fate. That is the crux of Francis de Pontes Peebles' new book, The Air You Breathe, a story of intense female friendship, ambition, and envy. Literally all of my favorite topics. Frances's book tour brought her to Miami, which gave us a chance to talk in person about what it takes to birth a work of fiction. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What is your first memory of knowing that you wanted to be a writer? You know, I've always been a big reader, so I have a lot of early memories of books and how special they were to me and still are to me. And the first, I mean, I remember the first book that I checked out of the library. What was it? And it was this strange children's book <laughs> about Nellie Bly, who's this muckraking reporter um, in the 1880s, she was one of the first female journalists, and she pretended to be insane, checked herself into a madhouse, and then stayed there for 10 days to document, like, the abuses to people with mental health issues at the time. And it was a huge, like, um, discovery for people that, you know, patients were being mistreated. And obviously this is not—I don't think a child's book would be written about this <laughs> today— <laughs> The illustrations are pretty crazy, but I think that's why I remember it, and I loved it so much. Like, I wanted to steal it from the library, and I didn't, but I just remember feeling like, oh, my God, like, this woman existed, and she did this, and you can, like, books can take me to places like this, mm -hmm. um, so I could experience that risk, but not really in my actual life, and that's what I love about books. 
So books kind of captivated me first, and it was only after I graduated college that I was like, well, I'm going to apply to some graduate programs and see if this is something I want to do. I didn't have the intention of I'm going to make writing a career. I just thought I want to learn more and I want to be a better writer. And so I want to study this and see if it's something for me. Wait a second. (laughs) But then you go to the most prestigious writers program in the country. Yeah, the Iowa Writers Workshop. It was such an amazing two years of my life. At Iowa, they really, I know that there's an argument about whether MFAs are good or bad, if they create the same kind of writing style. And I definitely understand where that argument comes from. And I do think it's changing. And I do think programs like Iowa are becoming much more diverse and have many different voices and styles now. But in terms of reading and honing my craft and understanding that it was a craft, that, you know, one of my professors said, writing is the art of making decisions. And I'd never thought of it that way. You know, so many times writers are depicted as the muse strikes and you just sit at your garret and you have your pen and ink and you just start writing. It's not that way at all. If anything, it has to be this ritual. And there's a lot of hard decisions that you have to make about the story that you're telling and taking your ego out of it as a writer and being true to the story and So I think being at Iowa for two years and simply focusing on writing was such a gift and was so amazing because the whole world went away. You know, Iowa City is a pretty tiny place and everything kind of evaporated for me except for the writing and the reading and my colleagues there. How do you create a world or how do you even start a novel? I mean, is it creating the world? You know, I think for every writer it's different. Um, But I love that you phrased the question that way because I think that's what it's all about is for me, it's like immersing myself in another place, another time, other people. If anything, I want to completely disappear and it feels almost like a meditation when that happens. It's this amazing feeling where all the minutiae of the day goes away and you're so fully immersed in that time and place. But how does it start? I feel... Like when I get an idea that I like, it kind of feels like a little crackle. Like it feels like there's something alive in it and I want to pursue it more. And that doesn't always mean that it becomes a book or a story. There's so many orphaned ideas and I just kind of keep them and think, I'm not ready for this as a writer. Maybe one day I'm going to be the writer that this needs. But right now I'm not prepared for it and I have to just leave it. So I've had a lot of stories that took 10 years to kind of incubate before I sat down and actually wrote them because I think I needed to mature a little bit more as a writer. But that initial spark, it always, it really does feel like a spark for me. It feels like something kind of comes alive in me and it could be something very small. It could be just the tiniest idea. It could be I read a biography of someone and it's not even about that person. It's about something in that biography sparks something else and then it kind of goes from there and then I love doing research so then I start researching like crazy and then that gets me even deeper in the world and the material and so then it kind of goes in tandem where this fictional world and then the actual kind of research drive one another and propel one another. And then what is your actual process of writing? I mean do you sit down every day? Do you have a certain number of hours you give yourself? 
I try to. I mean, I have, I think when I became a mother, that changed a lot. But I love Mary Oliver, who's a poet, has this book called The Poetry Handbook. And um, she talks about when you write, it's like meeting up with a wonderful, great friend. And so you meet with that friend every day, you make an appointment. And if you don't show up, you know, that idea is going to go away. It's going to feel like you didn't give it the time and the space that it needed. So I really try to make it a daily ritual, even if I'm just researching, even if I'm just reading, even if I'm, um, you know, some days I can write for when I don't have, you know, I always have to work around my daughter's schedule, but some days I can write for hours and hours straight and other days it's just not flowing like that and I have to let that be, but I have to do something that encourages the creative process, whether that's reading another great book and getting inspired by another writer or taking a walk or doing something that stimulates that idea. It's been 10 years since your first book, The Seamstress, which garnered much critical acclaim. It was translated into nine different languages. Where'd you go in those 10 years? Wow. Um, I went a lot of places, both physically and psychologically. Um, So my husband and I, right when The Seamstress came out, my husband and I decided to move back to Brazil. Is he Brazilian as well? No, he's uh, born and bred Miamian. He's native Miamian. Does he speak Portuguese? He does speak Portuguese and Spanish, but so it's kind of a mix. But he speaks great Portuguese now after, you know, we live there. He even speaks Portuguese with a Northeastern accent, like my family does, which is like got kind of a Southern twang to it. So it's kind of cute. But we moved back to Brazil where my family has a small organic shade coffee farm. We were farmers for those years and uh, ran our my family's farm and built a business there and roasted coffee and took care of pigs and goats and tried to make um, prosciutto. So we were experimenting with a lot of salting of pork and, I mean, just doing everything. So we were there for almost four years. Um, and then I had my daughter there and we moved back to the United States for a because lot of— Because you had your daughter? For a lot of different reasons. I think we were ready. Uh, My family kind of took over the business. And I think I wanted to get back to writing. Having a newborn and running a business and trying to write was a lot. And I think my husband wanted to pursue other areas of coffee, um, the coffee business. And so we moved back to the U.S. And I I also wanted like a more uh, some kind of efficiency and regularity in my life that I didn't have because it was always kind of um, emergencies or obstacles. And um, that makes it hard to live kind of a creative life, especially when you're a mother, too. So I had to kind of pick what I wanted. And so it was being a mom and writing. So then we moved back first to Miami for a little bit and then to Chicago. And um, I was raising my daughter and trying to write, and eventually I got childcare, and eventually she went to school. And then that gave me time to really fully focus on this new book. So I felt really scattered for a long time, and I felt like I couldn't focus. Motherhood will do that to you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I actually felt very grateful to you. Um, in another interview, you had talked about how hard it is when you become a mom, both yeah. in terms of the psychological switch that happens. You've spoken about your postpartum. That's a piece of it. And so I wonder, first of all, I mean, did you recognize it as postpartum? How long did it take for you to know that? So 
You know, I was so focused, and I think a lot of women are, on giving birth that I didn't think it was almost like focusing on the wedding and not the marriage. And I was so focused on giving birth. And then what came after just kind of hit me like a truck where I just felt outside of myself. I felt very foggy. I felt very unattached to my daughter. And I wanted so deeply to feel attached to her, but I felt like I was just a vehicle for food. <laughs> I just felt out of my depth. And I thought every mother would experience that, but I didn't have, I was kind of alone on our farm and I didn't have people to talk to. And I didn't realize that it was a real depression until I think my husband saw it because he stayed with me for feedings in the middle of the night for a long time in the first six months because he was worried about me and about the baby. Um, and I, at one point when I was feeling really just not myself, it was in the middle of the night and I was nursing my daughter and I was at my parents' um, apartment because we would have to go into the city to see the pediatrician. We, you know, there's no, there's not a lot where we were on the farm. So we would drive four hours in every couple of weeks to see the pediatrician and they have this balcony. And I thought if I just jump off this balcony with the baby, everything's going to be okay. And deep down, I knew that that wasn't the solution. And I got really scared because I thought just even me thinking that that was a solution was just very scary. So I told my husband that and he stayed up with me every night. You know, he nursed her with me every night. And eventually, um, and she also had colic, so it was like crying for hours on end for no reason. Um, but eventually I got out of that, and it was only afterwards that I was like, you know, I probably should have seen a doctor and should have gotten some medication. But I think that even when you're not as isolated as I was, there is a certain isolation to motherhood. Even here in the United States, I feel it, you know, um, not as much anymore that my daughter's in school, but I think that the modern life... For mothers, you are expected to do everything and not show any effort. And um, To be a woman, you're not supposed to show any effort. It's all supposed to be effortless. Right. My exactly. hair just looks like yeah. this. Thank you for sharing that. Because <laughs> um, it, it's hard no matter how which way it ends up being hard for you, whether it's hard to get pregnant or yeah. to be a mom. We spend so much time talking about how you bounce back <laughs> in terms of our bodies. And really, there's an entire identity piece to that. Yes. It's like you don't go back to being who no, you are. No, nor would I want to. I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I think that this idea of bouncing back or look at her six weeks later, she's just the same. You're never the same, but that's what life is. It's, you, I don't want to be the same. I don't want to be the person. I want a forward motion, you know, and even if that forward motion is incredibly hard, I don't think it has to be hard. I think that women need more support. I think that women need more education about, what those first years of motherhood are. I think that would definitely make things better and easier. I need a lot of focus and solitude and time to do what I do and to write books. And being a mother requires a different kind of skill set and a different kind of focus. So it's this attention that's multifaceted and constantly on the go and you're constantly doing 10 different things at once. That's what motherhood requires of me. 
because it, it is an individual experience for everyone. But for me, I just feel like I'm constantly thinking of how all the pieces of our lives are going to fit together and when I'm going to pick her up and how I'm going to do this and school needs that and I need to do X, Y, and Z before four o'clock. And that to me isn't conducive to sitting down and really focusing and having a deep conversation with this work or this creative piece of myself. And I had to rewrite the book probably two times during those two and a half years. And I'm glad that I did. I mean, it was heartbreaking and it was definitely hard, but I had such an amazing editor. Um, The thing that I love about publishing is that it's mostly women. So I worked with all women and my editor was incredible and she kept my focus and she was like, Francis, what is this really about? This is about music and about friendship and keep it there. It's about friendship and it's about envy. Yes. Which I think are really powerful forces between friends because you can have a lot of mutual love and a lot of mutual respect and at the same time want something that the other has. Definitely. I thought a lot in reading your book about uh, there's an Oprah quote that is something like, you can't be friends with someone who wants your life. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that wholeheartedly because I think that when we have these deep bonds with our friends and with other women, I think that there's a shared life that you weave together through your friendship that, of course, you want the best for each other, but I envy my friends. You know, I envy their lives that I don't have. It's not a productive emotion, you know? I don't think it's a mean kind of envy. I think there's different kinds of envy. You know, I think that there's an envy where it's like, gosh, I wish I had that, but you're not wishing that person harm. So I think that those are the different, you know, that's the distinction. So what do you see about other people's lives that you envy? Give me one example. Um, I have a friend, a really dear friend, who lives abroad. She lives in London, and she travels a lot with her kids. And her kids are small, so it's not easy to travel with small kids. But they go everywhere and do everything and try new things. And I would love to do that, but at the same time, I know that— To do that or to be the type of person who could do that? To be the type of person that could do that. That is a great distinction because (laughs) for me, I need structure, and I love structure— And I need routine. And I think part of that comes from just craving that time that I have to make for my work. And she's a writer also, and she also needs structure and routine. But she manages to fit both. And I think that's what I envy is her ability, this magical ability that she and her husband have to put those two pieces together. I do envy that. I want to be that kind of person. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. 
Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. The Air You Breathe is a book that centers on two friends, share a love of music, try to make careers in music. I understand that you originally were going to center the work around the life of Carmen Miranda. Yes. But then changed your mind. What changed it? So in the beginning, I read a biography about Carmen Miranda, and I was so fascinated by her and her life. Um, she was this amazing well-respected singer in Brazil. And then she came to the United States as part of the Good Neighbor program, where they basically recruited Latin American talent to shift ideas of what, you know, Latinx people were and are. Because for a long time, uh, anyone that was from, you know, south of the United States was portrayed as a villain. And in World War II, they had to shift that because they wanted the northern and southern hemisphere to be all on the same page and all good neighbors. Why? Because Latin America, Brazil especially, has a lot of steel and a lot of rubber and a lot of things that both the Germans and the United States needed. So both were courting Brazil like crazy, the U.S. and Germany. And who was going to win out? Eventually, you know, the U.S. won out in terms of alliances and friendship. But how do you convince the American public that people that were once villains are now your good neighbors. Well, you use the movies. And so they recruited Hollywood studios to find Latin American talent that would be amenable and be friendly. And so that's how you get the heartthrob and the vixen and the Carmen Miranda, who's like a comedic act. She was never a comedian before. And suddenly she became a joke and I think that if you read her biography, that destroyed her. She wasn't in on the joke. She wasn't the powerful one. You know, usually comedians, you have the power of you, you're you telling the joke. You are, not, you are not the joke. But she was the joke. And then she was kind of cast off after the war and kind of thrown away. Um, anyway, that's a very long preamble. But I was very interested in her. But then as I started writing, I realized it. It didn't want to tell like a e true Hollywood story. That's not, <laughs> and it be kind of was was becoming that. And it's a story that's been told many times. I didn't want to tell that story, and it was just this instinct in me. And then I read this great book, written by this really jealous friend of of Edith Piaf, the French singer. The friend wrote this tell all 
And I was like, oh, my God, they were in love with each other in this deep bond. And then she is so angry that this bond was broken. And I was like, this is it. I don't want to tell it from the star's voice because the star inevitably, in my book at least, Grasa, who is the star, I think it would be tough to be in her head. It, it would be very narrow, a narrow experience. But her friend, Doris, who's always backstage writing the songs, never performing, but always wanted to perform. To me, that was where the story was. That was where the interesting parts of the story were, because she was the one that was observing everything. And she was deeply smart and hurt and in love. I mean, she deeply loves Grasa, not just in a friendly way. And so I think that I wanted to explore all of the different kinds of love that a person can have through their life. Like, in the book, there's friendship love, there's romantic love, there's artistic love, where these two people come together and get married because they're artists with each other, because they produce great songs together, not because they love each other physically, but they only ever write songs together. And so the betrayal for them would be if they went and wrote songs with somebody else, not if they slept with somebody else. So I think the book widened and became richer when I let go of this idea of Carmen Miranda and kept it and fictionalized it and made it about these two friends. So you spend 10 years, it takes 10 years to sort of birth this thing. Yes. Yeah. And now you're on to your next novel. Yeah. How do you shake off this world and these characters after spending so much time with them? That I mean, these are all amazing <laughs> questions because I'm in the midst of doing that right now. And it's—this book still feels fresh in that I just finished copy edits on it, you know, months ago, and suddenly it's out in the world. And so it feels—it still feels like it's with me. But I do have this little ritual where I, on top of my desk on the wall, I have poems and photos and kind of like an inspiration board— and the past couple of weeks, I've been taking all of those inspirations for the air you breathe down and putting them away and starting to kind of let the wall be empty for a while so that I can focus on new things. Growing up Brazilian in Miami, did other people identify you as a Latina? Yes and no. So my dad, when we lived here, he worked at a Brazilian construction company. And there were always a ton of Brazilians like on Key Biscayne and at this company. And so I did feel kind of encircled more so than anywhere else that I've lived by Brazil and Brazilianness. But at the same time, Brazilians are a very small minority here in Miami compared to like the Cuban population, for example. So I didn't speak Spanish. I spoke Portuguese. So I can totally understand Spanish, but I mangle it when I try to speak it. So in high school, I was the only Brazilian that I can remember, you know. And so I felt like I was always—I didn't feel um, like I was part of that kind of crew of Cuban-Americans. And so when did you claim your Latina identity? <laughs> That's a hard question because I think it's always been a part of me. My first book— was re-released in Brazil recently, um, the second printing of it. And I went down there and the interviewer asked me, do you feel Brazilian or do you feel American? And I think I've always felt both deeply because we've always gone back and forth. I would always visit Brazil. I had lived in Brazil for, you know, years after 
college and then again where my daughter was born. And so I have deep memories of both places. So it's just something so innate in me that I've never really kind of thought of myself as anything other than both. Brazilian's one thing, though. Latina's another. Yeah. In the sense that my Latina identity is very centered on growing up in an immigrant enclave Mm -hmm. where nobody, none of us called ourselves Latina. We all called ourselves by our parents' country of origin. Yeah. Um, And then having the experience of being in very elite institutions where all of a sudden I was then faced with the reality that being Latina was a minority position. Yeah, a thing. Yeah. Um, And I wonder for you, when you went to college in Texas, I think. You make a very good point in that it was only when I left Miami, I think, and I went to UT Austin, which I loved, and I had an amazing experience there. The first year was hard for me, and I remember having a conversation with my father and saying, I want to transfer, I want to go back to Florida, because I felt so, it just, everything felt so different. The place, the people, Um, you know, eventually I made incredible friends and found my own group of people there. But yeah, I do think that that's when I realized like, oh, the experience that I had growing up was actually quite different than a lot of people have. So I guess that's when I've kind of fully, um, I wouldn't say that I embraced it, but that it embraced me in that not that I was not trying to embrace it, but that it just felt so natural to me. And then suddenly I was in Texas and I, I was feeling like, oh, this is different. I'm different. And that's okay. I, you know, I like it, but it's something to consider. Thank you so much, Francis, for doing Thank this. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, one of the best ways to support us, besides telling everyone you know about us, is by listening on the Radio Public app. When you listen there, we get paid. And the app's tip button lets you leave us a tip of any amount up to $100. Major shout out and thank you to the individuals who left us our first two tips. We promise to spend it wisely. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lantigua-Williams and me. Amita Ganatra was the sound designer on this episode. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.